Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Victoria L. Pemberton, RNMS, a clinical trial specialist at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. Ms. Pemberton is here with us today to discuss her article, Therapeutic Hypothermia After Pediatric Cardiac Arrest Trials, The Vanguard Phase Experience and Implications for Other Trials, published in the January 2013 Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for being here today, Vicki. Well, thank you for inviting this discussion. Uh, Vicki, would you start with an overview of the THAPCA trial or the therapeutic hypothermia after pediatric cardiac arrest trial? Sure. This trial is actually a randomized clinical trial being conducted in currently 38 sites in the U.S. and Canada. And the trial compares therapeutic hypothermia to therapeutic therapeutic normothermia on survival with good neurobehavioral outcomes, and that's after a cardiac arrest. The trial is really divided into two separate what we call trials or maybe arms, those children who have had an in-hospital arrest as opposed to those who have had an out-of-hospital arrest, and they really are two separate trials, um, children randomized within each of those groups. There will be up to 950 children enrolled in the trial, um, and just generally speaking, they're between two days of age and 18 years, and they've suffered a cardiac arrest uh, requiring chest compressions for at least two minutes with return of spontaneous circulation. Would you tell us what a Vanguard phase is? Well, I think a Vanguard phase in terms of what uh, the... Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute thought about it was, uh, is sometimes referred to as maybe a pilot or a run-in phase also. And this was um, uh, something that we had used in a couple of previous trials. It really just means to set aside a period of time and have time to determine perhaps the feasibility of a trial or assess the safety of a particular intervention or to look at whether a trial could really meet some kind of milestone or recruitment goals. So it really meant setting aside a period of time to test something. And in this case, the Vanguard phase for the FAPCA trial lasted about 18 months, and we can talk a little bit about how that was divided up and what went on during that time. Why did the NHLBI want to do a Vanguard phase with the FAPCA trial? Well, I think that um, we recognize that conducting clinical trials is challenging in and of itself, but considering the hurdles facing complex pediatric trials such as this one, um, really looking at strategies and best practices that could enhance trial success is really important. And so we actually had a couple of goals for uh, or reasons why we proposed a vanguard phase. First of all, there were some concerns about the complexities of the trial. Um, There wasn't a lot of outcome data to suggest using the specific THAPCA protocol and the inclusion and exclusion criteria. Uh, We didn't have that outcome data, and so the absence of that data questioned or made us question uh, whether the trial could 
could be conducted feasibly. Um, we also were concerned about the very narrow window between obtaining parental consent and getting the children on the cooling blankets and uh, whether we could do that within the six-hour uh, time period that was allotted by the, the protocol. And then there were some concerns about obtaining the primary outcome data on patients that might go on to have significant disability. And I think you probably can understand that uh, patients having cardiac arrest outside of the hospital and inside of the hospital, this involved uh, a variety of specialists caring for these patients and getting the agreement and cooperation of a, a variety of specialists to enroll patients into a clinical trial was going to be formidable, to say the least. And uh, since the, the pilot data had initially been procured, there was some question as to whether there was equipoise still for the study interventions. So what were the key goals in sort of the timeline of the Vanguard phase? So the key goal, sort of the overreaching goal, was really to demonstrate that the safety or that the uh, study could be conducted safely and that it was feasible. Um, and more specifically, one of the goals was to provide a six-month period of time to allow the investigators to complete administrative activities. So I think one of the things that we recognized early on was that upon funding this trial, the investigators, while they were really much better prepared than many of our investigators coming into a clinical trial, there were still a number of activities that needed to happen. And some of those were on our our side as well. Um, NHLBI in this case would uh, typically stand up a data safety monitoring board. So we wanted to have time to do that, to get the members on board, to provide a forum for the members to meet and look at the protocol and approve that protocol before it was actually uh, instituted. We also knew that the investigators would need to get the clinical sites on board get the IRB approvals, the subcontracts signed, and then train a substantial number of sites and their clinical research teams in order to launch the trial. So I think this was a key goal, was to provide enough time for those activities to begin, then allow about 12 months for actual recruiting. And we felt that in this way, we were limiting uh, NHLBI's financial exposure, but also providing some uh, really achievable but pre-specified milestones of what we expected to happen during that 18-month period of time. So how did you use that period of time to determine whether the study should go forward as a full trial um, to improve the likelihood of success of the study uh, and basically make sure that it was, in fact, feasible? Yeah, so I think that's a great question, and that's really what we're looking at in this paper. So one of the things that we did initially was to agree upon some pre-specified enrollment targets. So the investigators and NHLBI came together and we talked about what would be reasonable. And our first condition was that 
we would um, allow the investigators to enroll at half the number of sites that they had originally proposed. And you'll remember they originally proposed 30 sites. And we said, let's start with 15, bring 15 on, let's see if we can get all of those administrative activities accomplished in the first six months. And actually, they were, they were ready to go on September 1st of 2009 and uh, launched the, the trial on that day. And uh, what we know from, from the data now that, that we have looked at, that the first patient was actually screened two days later and the first two patients were enrolled three days after the study launched. So we did start looking at those types of milestones. The other thing that, um, as I said, we were really concerned about was was it feasible for um, patients to be consented and the study intervention initiated within that six hours? And indeed, we were able to track that and find that 92% of children were able to be placed on the cooling blankets within that six-hour period of time. We also were very interested in ensuring that the trials could be conducted safely. And the investigators had um, decided on a specific adverse event reporting system, which is really very much like a, a sentinel event reporting approach. And this was tested during the Vanguard phase, and the DSMB uh, did meet twice after the launch of the trial to assess safety and, and had no concerns. So we were able to look at some of these milestones. We um, convened an administrative review uh, with some very strict criteria and uh, assessed that at the end of the Vanguard, and in fact, four months before the Vanguard was scheduled to end, the investigators had already achieved their target milestone. What do you think were the things that were done in the context of the Vanguard phase that made it so successful in that sh short timeline, the initial part of the study? Yeah, so we've really looked at this and tried to analyze what we think were those successes. And I think that probably allocating those six months for the pretrial launch activities was a key ingredient to success. Um, if, if we look at uh, some of the uh, data that we've, we're publishing in this paper, um, I think that also the idea of competition um, played a role. Uh, so by that I mean that when the sites knew that there were not going to be 30 sites in the Vanguard phase, but only 15 would be selected, and the the uh, PIs were very savvy in saying, the first 15 to get your IRB approval and contract signed would have a Vanguard slot. So indeed, when you look at that, IRB approvals were really um, some as early as 56 days after they were issued. And in fact, one contract was signed within a day of being received. And oftentimes at, at um, NIH, we hear about the formidable challenges of getting contracts signed. Mm -hmm. And actually, the, the latest or the longest contract signed in, in the Vanguard phase was 50 days. 
So I think a little bit of competition um, was good. That initial momentum then, I think, led to crossing the minimum recruitment threshold four months ahead of schedule. So once the study launched, as I said, the first couple of patients were enrolled within three days after trial launch. So we know that the sites were very well prepared by the time they came to study launch. Everybody was sort of ready to get out of the gate. So I think implementing deadlines was good, a little competition was good. I also think that we found that managing a smaller number of sites ultimately was good. Um, We didn't necessarily think about 15 Vanguard sites uh, because of this, but we were thinking more in terms of the financial commitment. Um, But I think it did have some side benefits. And obviously, managing fewer sites with protocol amendments or guiding them through their first couple of randomizations. Um, The study leadership could provide more supervision, keep an eye on things, make sure things were going smoothly. Um, The fact that there were pre-specified milestones, that everybody knew what they were and everybody knew that they had to succeed or, or it was over. And then I think one of the other things that was really key to the group was um, something that the PIs instituted very early on was a lessons learned portion of their PI calls. And that's where, uh, you know, everyone shared kind of what was going on, sort of the, the bad things and the good things. And when we found very successful recruitment strategies, those were shared, and other sites would then attempt those to replicate those at their centers with some success, we think. You mentioned amendments. There were several amendments done during the Vanguard phase, um, as opposed to, I believe, only one after the Vanguard phase was completed. Right. Um, The fact that you had a Vanguard phase make it easier to tweak the protocol, if you will? I think it did, and I think, again, the fewer number of sites getting those approved was very helpful. And when we brought on the full complement of sites after the Vanguard phase, those little kinks were already worked out, if you will. But doesn't having a Vanguard phase make the whole trial take longer? Yeah, so this was, uh, I think, one of the uh, challenges for not only the study, but for NHLBI. And it certainly, in this case, did extend the study period by about 12 months. And um, we know that that's a little bit challenging in terms of, um, on our part for NHLBI, figuring out how to fit a five-year funding approach into those, you know, considering Mm -hmm. those extra 12 months did take a little bit of... um, Uh, recalculating. Um, And I think that you do risk certainly some study fatigue if you extend it out too long. Uh, And you also, we were also facing the possibility that perhaps the study intervention could be more widely adopted for clinical use outside of the trial. And so those were some uh, downsides to extending it for 12 months, but I 
think we probably feel like that investment was well worth it. The trial right now still remains on track. They're recruiting at about 97% of target, which is really pretty unheard of for many clinical trials. And uh, as of today, 465 children have been randomized into these trials. You mentioned uh, at the beginning the concern about whether clinical equipoise exists. Um, is there, have you had, do you know whether there was um, much of an issue with people using off-study hypothermia and hence not enrolling patients in the trial because of that? That's a great question. Because I think, as I alluded to, in 2003, when the pilot data was collected preparatory to this, this trial, um, those data showed that about 3% of patients were getting hypothermia. Now, we realize that that is 2003. Mm-hmm. And by the time that we launched the Vanguard in September of 2009, we were finding that hypothermia was being used in about 28% of the in-hospital cardiac arrest that we were screening and about 24% of the out-of-hospital. And so this was another opportunity for the Vanguard phase to be able to really look at what some of the issues were surrounding that to increase surveillance, to develop strategies for managing this at each of the research sites, and to begin to develop some collaborations with um, a lot of the pediatric cardiology colleagues. Um, And this seemed to be where a lot of the in-hospital hypothermia issues arose, and to develop some strategies for then enrolling in, uh, in the CICUs. So I do think that you're absolutely right. We we did find that there were some changes in um, in practice, which probably related, you know, resulted in some changes in in thinking about equipoise. Um, since that time, we've continued to monitor that, and actually, those uh, statistics are getting a little bit better, and we're finding that. With some education, with some of the strategies that have been uh, shared amongst the sites, um, some grand rounds and presentations and webinars that uh, we're slowly making some headway in that regard. Um, You describe in your paper that uh, children who had an out-of-hospital arrest were their their families were approached and they were enrolled in the trial at a higher rate than children who had an in-hospital arrest. I'm not sure that's intuitive to me, um, since I think that children who had an out-of-hospital arrest, it's a sudden, devastating blow to the parents. And and to be able to understand and consent to this study in such a short time frame, I would think might be more difficult than parents of a child who had already been in the hospital. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think that you're right, and I think that uh, probably we thought the same thing. Uh, 
But that's not what the data showed. And again, I, I think this was one of the advantages of the Vanguard phase, that we learned that pretty early on. Um, in fact, we found that fewer patients were, were being approached even, um, and then consented, in turn consented. And um, it may be, again, this issue of um, the varying practices among pediatric cardiology colleagues for utilizing hypothermia. But in fact, we had one site that was very successful with their in-hospital enrollments. And this was an example of those shared strategies, and that site was very instrumental in coming forward and sort of laying out how they had successfully overcome some of those barriers. And I think as a result now, other sites are, have begun to use some of those same strategies, and we're finding that in-hospital recruitment is picking up. Um, and one of the other strategies that the uh, FAPCA leadership has done is to look for, uh, to really emphasize the in-hospital recruitment but also to look for sites that would have a large pool of in-hospital uh, cardiac arrests. And most of the in-hospital cardiac arrests I'm, I'm gathering from what you've said, and I may be misinterpreting, come from the congenital heart disease cardiac surgery population? I think you're absolutely right. And we, we found that in the interim of this study being proposed um, and, and launched, that uh, the rapid response teams that are often now implemented inside of hospitals have really reduced the number of in-hospital cardiac arrests outside of the, the CICUs. Interesting. So the enrollment for the trial is now a little bit more half than halfway through, is that? Uh, we're a little more than halfway through. Um, the, the numbers, uh, while we're, we're looking at enrolling up to 950 children, there are a minimum number in each of the, the study uh, arms, the out-of-hospital versus uh -huh. in-hospital that are needed. Uh, we need evaluable patients. Uh -huh. So, um, you know, we may uh, enroll a few less than 950 if, if the number of evaluable patients uh, remains pretty steady as we're seeing it now. What um, lessons might be learned from, from this experience that could be helpful to investigators who are considering other complex clinical trials, which is probably most trials in pediatric <laughs> critical care? Right, I agree with you. So that's a great question because I think that we have learned a couple of things that may be able to be transferable to other, um, other clinical trials in pediatrics. I think one of the things that, um, that investigators may wish to consider is maybe not so much of a formal vanguard study um, and maybe not even a year but incorporating some time at the beginning of a project to do all of those administrative things that we talked about. I think it is incumbent upon the investigator team and the funding agency to really acknowledge that um, study startup is slow. And I would encourage investigators to really project modest milestones 
in the beginning and show ramp up as, as you go on. And I think once studies have some early success, it does help to build some momentum. If you feel like you're failing from the very beginning, uh, things don't necessarily go uphill from there. I think another interesting thing for um, multi-center PIs to consider would be a phased approach to bringing on sites. And again, as I mentioned, I, I think it's easier to manage a smaller number of sites. It's easier to get them up and running, to get them trained. Um, a little competition might be helpful, um, but it may not be feasible in every kind of trial, but I think considering a phased approach might be a, a reasonable uh, strategy that, that will build some success. And then I think sharing recruitment strategies among the trial sites at, at regularly scheduled calls or meetings is really important. We have learned a great deal from one another, and uh, the PIs have been very proactive in getting experts to come on, uh, perhaps someone uh, who has expertise in consenting in the emergency room. Um, we've had webinars on how to consent patients. We've discussed uh, short consent forms and use of brochures and other aids that really might help uh, parents' understanding of the trial at a time when they're very emotionally distressed. Um, I think also acknowledging recruitment in some meaningful way very early on has helped this study and might be something that other uh, investigators could look at. And then we recognized that there were multiple ways to adjust study resources. And I think that the, the, this vanguard phase helped the principal investigators to really sort of experiment around with how um, uh, the finances were divvied up between you know, high versus low enrolling sites and how we could get adequate resources to those sites that really needed them or more resources to high enrolling sites. And so this period of time allowed them to test some of those approaches and to identify really a more optimal approach for this study for funding. Um, and then we talked a little bit about some of the protocol amendments that were done. One in particular um, was to one of the exclusion criteria. And initially, the exclusion criteria um, included those patients with a, a repeat cardiac arrest prior to randomization. They were excluded, and we saw as we went along, there were about 10 patients with that exclusion criteria uh, excluded early in the Vanguard phase. But after looking at their mortality rates, um, it was decided with the help of the DSMB that this population was not really intrinsically different and therefore they could be included, and this did help to increase the potential recruitment pool. So I think looking at the inclusion-exclusion criteria as you're going along, and I do think a lot of uh, study PIs do this um, to make sure that, that they're the right ones from the ones that you originally proposed to use. 
And uh, I would encourage anyone who's thinking about a Vanguard phase to design it in such a way that the Vanguard patients could be included within the larger trial population, if at all possible. Well, you've certainly um, done a great job with this trial and um, describing it to us. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thank you so much. We have been talking today with Victoria L. Pemberton from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, discussing the article, Therapeutic Hypothermia After Pediatric Cardiac Arrest Trials, The Vanguard Phase Experience and Implications for Other Trials, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in January 2013. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. You can now find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Members receive discounts on all SCCM educational programs and resources. Please ask to speak to a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.